Geopolitics and Empire is joined by Brussels-based political analyst Gilbert Doctorow. Welcome to Geopolitics and Empire, Gilbert. Thanks for the invitation. I, I've been uh, enjoying your work for many years, and so it's a pleasure to finally speak with you. And here on Geopolitics and Empire, I like to get right to the heart of the matter and jump straight into the fray and examine the existential issues. And you've recently been writing about the coming existential threat. You discussed Russia revising their nuclear plans in light of fears Ukraine or the U.S. Uh, via Ukraine targets Crimea and Heartland Russia. These plans foresee counter strikes against U.S. military installations in Europe and in the continental U.S. using hypersonic missiles. And you point out that a panelist on Russian TV calls for the threat of uh, counter strikes in Europe and the U.S. to be made public and explicit so that no one is in doubt about what to expect from the Kremlin. You also wrote that, quote, the Russians are stripping away the fiction of a proxy war and revealing the co-belligerent status of the U.S., and its NATO allies in preparation for a kinetic war with NATO. And your conclusion in your recent piece, uh, you know, freaking me out, you write, quote, back in 1937, there were Jews in Berlin who decided they could ride out the storm and stay put. There were others who took the first boats out to England, to the U.S., to South America. All of us in the Northern Hemisphere now may be facing the same existential choice, uh, end quote. And, you know, apart from what you've pointed out, I am seeing many similar signals, reports, uh, and movements to back up what could you know your possible vision of the future and so could you give us your breakdown of the ukraine war uh and, and, and you know this east versus west proxy war which is basically a world war three scenario uh you know could you tell us uh from your vantage point what's going on first of all there's a lot of mirror imagery here between what the russians are doing and the, and the united states are doing. in the united states uh they don't see this they there is a condescension towards Russia, condescension towards most of the world. And they cannot, in Washington, they cannot simply take in the fact that the Russians could be playing them the same way that they think they're playing the Russians. What do I have in mind? Uh, both sides have been uh, applying what, what is commonly described as turning up the temperature on the frog in a, in a pot. Um, that is to say, both sides have been doing baby steps, incremental escalation of the sort that they're testing the red lines of the other side. And um, as for the United States, they don't quite see that the Russians are doing this, but I assure you they are. And what is behind it on both sides is a caution not to do something dramatic. The Russians have, from the very start, for a variety of reasons, uh, have avoided the American way of war, of shock and awe, devastating the enemy, and, and then proceeding to clean up. Of course, that shock and awe and easy cleanup was done in, in recent wars by the United States against third-rate military powers, whether it's Iraq or any of the other smaller countries that the United States has devastated, and there have been many of them in the last 20 years. Uh, they were never peer-to-peer -peer fights. What we see now, in the case of Russia and Ukraine, is can be described as a peer-to-peer -peer combat. Uh, Ukraine, after all, though maybe, maybe it's three times smaller than Russia, nonetheless, it was packed with weapons and with uh, and the bit they had built over the last eight years um, very competently defense uh, trenches 
and fortifications uh, on the on the border with at the at the point of demarcation with the Donbas to ensure that they would be well protected in case the Russians came came up to the line and started striking them. Um, so the the Ukrainians have the have what is called the second largest military in Europe, and the United States was very happy to pit them against the Russians or to provoke the Russians into attacking them, very much as the United States um, hoped and nearly succeeded in destroying the Iranians and the Iraqis uh, some time ago, feeding both sides, in that case, the military uh, aid, uh, and uh, letting them slaughter one another. But here, the Russians didn't need any help with munitions and with uh, equipment. They were doing quite well on their own, thank you. But the Ukrainians were being fed every imaginable um, kind of instruction and support and discipline by American and British primarily instructors over a period of years. So you had a the, the potential for a very dramatic fight between these two major European countries egged on by the United States. A quick shout out to our sponsors, which you can locate via the sponsor page on geopoliticsandempire.com or whose links are included in every podcast description. I've tried privacy phones in the past, such as Silent Circle's Black Phone, which turned out to be a dud. The best and really only option so far is de-googling your phone. Now, you can do it yourself, but I've never had the time to figure that out and simply got an above phone. They sell degoogled phones that come with a suite of software. They also provide support and a monthly above privacy suite with many features such as a unique phone number, encryption, email, VPN, and so forth. If you're looking for a private phone, check out above phone. Make sure to click on the above phone link on geopoliticsandempire.com or via the podcast description so that we can enjoy a commission. Also, check out the Nomos Time Bank at nomos.net, which you can download in Spanish or English to your Apple or Google or de-Googled phone. Nomos allows people in your community to exchange services using time as a currency rather than fiat money. This will be one great way to survive in the coming algorithm ghetto. If you need health insurance, you can talk to my friend James Guzman of the Borderless Blog Podcast and Health Insurance. He offers free consultations. Simply schedule a time with him over at borderlesshealthinsurance.com. Finally, you can donate directly to Geopolitics and Empire, consult with me, the host, or become a member to join private monthly member Zoom calls where we shoot the breeze discussing world events. It has been widely assumed that the existential nature of the war pertained to Russia. <clears throat> After all, this was stated by Vladimir Putin himself, that um, uh, Russia will come up and will fight for its national interests when it feels challenged in an existential way as the uh, continuing arms deliveries to, uh, to Ukraine uh, had, been, uh, had been changing the, the security situation of Russia. In de facto, Ukraine had, by the time of the outbreak of this war, <clears throat> achieved um, the equivalent of NATO status, NATO membership status, in terms of the military support uh, it had been receiving. So from the standpoint of Moscow, um, the need was there to turn back the American and NATO support for 
Ukraine to move back, to push back the American and NATO presence at its borders uh, and, the, and to stymie the plans, which the Russians were well aware about, of, of, to, um, to install in Ukraine missile systems, which could uh, conceivably reach Moscow in seven, eight minutes and left no decision time for, for the leaders in the, in the Kremlin to, to take action, uh, essentially giving the United States and through Ukraine a first strike capability uh, on, on Russia. So we know that from the Russian side, this was from the very beginning and before the beginning of this, going back to the discussions which Russia held with the United States and with NATO in December of, uh, um, of 2021, uh, it was described as existential threat. It has been assumed by most everyone that for the United States, this, would, this was a conflict of, that was optional, a conflict which would be played out uh, by proxy, by cat's paw, the uh, Ukraine being the cat's paw, and that at any time, the United States could walk away from it. I have been reading uh, some very interesting commentary by a French historian in the last few days, which uh, forces me, and I hope it will persuade you and, and listeners to this program, that the war is existential for the United States as well. And it's precisely for that reason that this conflict is so dangerous and has runs the risk of escalating into a nuclear exchange. The, um, the other, other fact that should be brought in um, as we try to size up what the conflict is and how it differs from what conflicts we've had in the past between, well, used to be said superpowers from the 1990s, Russia was no longer a superpower, but Russia has remained a preeminent nuclear power, which is highly relevant to our considerations of will we survive or not this current conflict. Um, there have been, since the start of the Cold War, a whole series of proxy wars. Everyone knows this is called a proxy war, but people have short memories. The first proxy war uh, in the Cold War was the Korean War. The, the um, uh, war in Vietnam was a proxy war between the superpowers. Uh, in some ways, the, the both sides came close to, as close to being co-belligerents in that war as we see today um, with NATO supposedly holding back and not, um, not crossing red lines that would make it a co-belligerent. But that's all how you want to read those red lines and how you want to understand the promises uh, uh, that, that the West has been giving to Ukraine. Well, it, it just is a slight um, side remark, uh, the Russians freely admit that in the Vietnam War, they had pilots and jets fighting on the, on the Vietnam side. They had Navy fighting on the Vietnam side. So if we look at what the United States and NATO are doing today in, uh, in Ukraine, it is not greatly different from uh, proxy wars that took place, including the Vietnam War. If you look at the wars um, in, in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq, the war in Libya, the war in, uh, in Syria. These all were described as proxy wars. 
So what's different now, and why should we be alarmed? The difference is that all of those preceding proxy wars in, in Cold War I and in Cold War II were taking place in third countries. The present proxy war is taking place on the territory of the Russian Federation. Now, there are some people who they dispute that, but from the Russian standpoint, from the standpoint of Russian law, Crimea, the two Donbass republics now, now uh, regions of the Ru Russian Federation, um, Zaporozhye and Kherson oblasts, these territories, formerly part of, of Ukraine, are now under Russian law, parts of the Russian Federation. And that is where the fighting is going on. So from the standpoint of the Russians, this is home territory, and it is very dramatic. Uh, the, all of that complicates the finding of a resolution. Now, there are many people on the sidelines who are in here in the West, in particular, who are saying, ah, we should push for peace, uh, but the United States in, and NATO are looking for a long war to weaken the Russians. This has been said explicitly by Austin, the head of the Pentagon, the um, Ministry of Defense of, in the uh, United States. And the, um, it, it is assumed to be so. But on closer inspection, things get more complicated. The, uh, the Russians are um, also interested in a long war. Now, they don't say that, but when you look at their behavior, uh, they are crushing, grinding into dust the Ukrainian military forces. Whether it's 150,000 Ukrainians killed, a little bit fewer, or a little bit more, Basically, the fighting forces of Ukraine are being destroyed. Ukraine is being demilitarized, which was stated as the objective uh, of Mr. Putin from the outset, uh, while we stand and watch. Uh, the, the border is slowly moving westward. There were two um, departures from this general rule that we don't know about. Uh, back in September and earlier, the Russians lost a very thinly guarded and protected um, uh, Kharkov and then Kherson uh, regions, which were overrun by, by Ukrainian forces and took them back. So that was a temporary defeat or seeming defeat for the Russians. But today, the Russians are moving inch by inch forward in the Donbass with the prospect of in a certain period of time, whether it's weeks or months, retaking or taking the entire Donbass region. Now, what do I mean by taking? Uh, the, Rus the Russians uh, held referendum in the, in the Donbass. At a, uh, this goes back to last September, at a time when Russia and its and the and the forces aligned to Russia, the local militias in these two. Oblasts, they're called provinces in Ukraine, only held 
um, about half of each, the rest was held on the other side of the line of demarcation by Ukrainian forces. Uh, there was a brief period of time in 2014 when, when uh, pro-Russian forces, local militias in, in Donbass, in, in Donetsk Republic, uh, went to the middle of the Republic and held an area for 85 days that became famous in the same way that, remember, the Alamo was famous in the United States, that is Slavyansk. The Russians are moving in that direction to recapture Slavyansk and to move, and since it is a critical central point in the Donetsk Oblast, uh, capture of that would inevitably bring them to control the whole Donbass. This sort of brings me to another question, and you referenced Emmanuel Todd, the French uh, historian and, and, and thinker whose um, interviews I've also been watching, and, and I think he's correct, and, and you are correct, and you also mentioned in a piece uh, you wrote uh, related to, I think it's important what you point out, to be listening to Russian media and sources to see how they are thinking. And you mentioned a high-level talk show moderated by uh, Vyacheslav Nikonov, grandson of the communist leader Molotov, um, where he states that he gives no weight to Biden and the Biden administration as leaders, and the strings are being pulled by the deep state, uh, which absolutely requires that the U.S. be at war uh, and um, that they wish to see, they have no wish to see an early end to the conflict. And this has been my view as an American and as a European uh citizen i view that washington historically has been very aggressive and that um they not only want to prolong conflict but actually there are maybe some crazies in brussels or washington that would provoke russia into initiating world war three proper at the same time i would agree with you that on the russian side they also want to prolong the war for various uh reasons that are you know usual to 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 governments to bolster their uh, economy to distract from um errors but you you also mentioned the scott ritters and douglas mcgregor's of this world i've had scott ritter on this program uh maybe two years ago uh and even back then before this war started he said we were still uh, under the biden administration under the nuclear uh specter and um you know the scott Ritters and mcgregor's uh speak as if the war is just about over and the ukrainian capitulation may be expected in a couple of weeks um but uh this is sort of what what, what you were getting at where do you see things going uh, from here will this war just drag on for years become a sort of a yugoslavia will will the eastern part of ukraine become sort of like the korean demilitarized zone or um will someone keep pushing until we cross some nuclear red line. Well, before I answer your very specific questions, I'd like to deal with something that is the very start of your remarks now, uh, and to say explicitly uh, where my, the strengths of my analysis are and where I do not pretend to have expertise. Uh, in criticizing McGregor and, and Scott Reard, I didn't mean to be disrespectful. I make no claims to military expertise. Anyone who is looking for military predictions in my writings is looking in the wrong place. My, what I bring to the table is something different. Um, I, I say this because it's very easy to be, con to hold, to be contemptuous of people uh, who do not have the same expertise that you have and to claim an un, uh, a disproportionate weight 
to what you bring to the table. I find that I try to avoid that, Robbie. And I also, when I give interviews, I only give interviews, but in, in about to answer questions where I feel I have a unique contribution to make and a unique expertise. And from where do I derive this unique contribution? Um, it is, I'm, I am a fluent Russian speaker. I, fo I follow the, the Russian media very closely daily. And I catch things on the fly. People say, oh, where's the link to what you're saying? And this happened today. Uh, someone asked me, please, and I'll have it translated on Google. And I say, my friend, I'm listening to Russia 24, which is a news program, and they do not have video clips. <laughs> There's nothing that you can take down and translate. I catch it on the fly. And you have to take my word for it. That's what I heard. The, the Another aspect of the same question is, what am I pretending to do? I am not a, a Putin stooge. I am not an advocate for Russian positions. <clears throat> I am an interpreter of Russian positions. The thing that's missing, and it's, and it's woeful, it's tragic because of the, the um, race to shut down Russian sources of information and to <clears throat> control completely European and American audiences. Uh, so if they only have available the Washington narrative, that has been very successful, but it's also extremely dangerous because not only the general American audience, but even the people at the top don't know what the other side is saying. <clears throat> I, in the last few days, I've been in a very useful, very, very, very interesting exchange of emails <clears throat> with a lieutenant colonel from the United States who is obviously working in a think tank and following the daily military action on the ground. But he is, uh, he doesn't know Russia and he doesn't have a clue to what the other side is thinking or planning. That is a terrible lack of information. And I, I try at my best to fill this void. So um, I watch programs, which I know are authoritative, which I know are setting out the thinking of Russian political, business, and social elites, even cultural elites, because some people who uh, represent the creative classes in Russia, artistic classes, also are invited to these, these talk shows. And this is important because Again, a very simplified. Russia has 146 million people. It has a very centralized government. It always has for the last uh, 500 years, uh, for obvious reasons. You know, uh, what I learned when I was an undergraduate in, in, in psychology courses of a cat has a cat's character because it has a cat's body. And so it is in Russia. Russia has its national character and its high centralization of government because it has the body it has, the world's largest country which would fall apart if it didn't have strong central leadership. So we can talk politics and democracy and decentralization, all of these things. But I say, coming back to what Russia is, it is what it is for specific, concrete uh, reasons that one can point to and not to individuals. Now, the, um, the contribution I, I'm making, as I said, is to set out the thinking of these elites because they establish the limitations on what a man like Mr. Putin can do. Well, that, the Statesman likes to speak about 
this, author this authoritarian government. It takes me back to what used to be said about the Soviet Union and the totalitarian government, which was fine if you were sitting in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and uh, sitting in your little study hall and, and, uh, and thinking over a cup of coffee of how, of how this totalitarianism should work. Uh, it looked very different when you spent time on the ground in Moscow, as I did, and you looked at the infighting between, well, at least there in the 1980s and 1990s, oh, 1970s, of the fighting that went on between ministries, the ministries. Uh, it was anything but a perfect top-down run state. And so it is today. Mr. Mr. Putin is a politician, and a politician works within certain parameters. But what is accepted by the people who support him, and that is partly the people in the street, but it's more directly the people who are all around him in the Kremlin and in political circles in Moscow. And these are the ones who are the talking heads on these shows. They are academics. They are deans in, in Moscow University or in think tanks. They are members of the Duma. They are members of the upper house uh, the, of the Russian legislature. They are responsible people. They are not fools. And uh, Mr. Nikonov is a case in point. There are very few fools at that level in Russian society, just as there are relatively few fools, and people may question this, at a similar level in Washington, D.C. The problem lies elsewhere in values and in, uh, and in comprehension, but not in uh, the, the, the IQ measures. You mentioned the authoritarianism, and I, I I have to keep pointing out myself again as the, as a Croatian American that we're seeing in the West now uh, totalitarianism, uh, you know, come uh, to fruition. You know, people like myself and others we're having our uh, financial accounts shut off. You know, I, I'm banned from PayPal just for having conversations like this. Where where's the liberty and the democracy? You know, German journalist Alina Lip had her bank account frozen, as well as her parents' bank accounts who have nothing to do with um, anything. And and uh, you know, in, in the few minutes that we have left, you know, any thoughts on that or, or any other you know, points that you wanted to bring home? Well, I am a Russian specialist, and I've been in this business for since 1965, since I'm still an undergraduate. I traveled to the Soviet Union. My first trip there was, in fact, in 1965. I traveled extensively to Russia between 1975 and 1980. That is a, a period of Leonid Brezhnev uh, that was the high and or low point of, of um, Soviet government. I understood very well what it meant to be living in a, in a authoritarian, not totalitarian state. Uh, it was very unpleasant. Well, you had to be very careful what you said and with whom. Uh, you had to be very careful whether the people at the next table in the restaurant weren't looking at you too closely and listening to you. For me, the most depressing thing about the last 20 years is to find that everything that I disliked and I found so awful about the Soviet Union has now moved to the United States. <laughs> it is, well, the United States has not gone all the way, no, of course not. And uh, you are fortunate in a way um, to have had such limited deprivation of income uh, compared to what ex was experienced by by a close colleague in, in Canada, a retired Canadian diplomat who spent time in the Canadian Embassy in Moscow, 
and who has had a very influential blog. He was visited by the Canadian uh, inte intelligence services. They told him that if he kept this up, his pension would be terminated and his life savings would be confiscated. He very wisely threw in the towel. Canada, with all those Ukrainian uh, Bandera kids, grandkids, is a uh, is a much more difficult place to find freedom of speech than the United States is. So, in a sense, let us be fair to Uncle Sam. In a period of relative repression, still freedom of speech. Uh, manages to hold on in the States. It's also true here in Europe, but not in public space, not in newspapers, which follow the dictates of, of Washington, the State Department, with knee-jerk reaction. That's all very sad. Any... Um... You know, any final thought for us? Uh, you know, any any thoughts what we can do? I think, you know, one of the most basic things is continuing this conversation um, such that we're having. Uh, and so, uh, you know, any final thought for us then? Yes, my hope is, and this was in that very same article that you were alluding to before, in which I explained how very dangerous the, uh, the situation around us is and how a escalation to a major war, not necessarily a nuclear war. Um, the, the article was criticized when people said, ah, there's a nuclear war and we'll have a nuclear winter and it doesn't make any difference if you head to the southern hemisphere. Well, of course, that thesis is a thesis and nothing else, a hypothesis, but the more important overriding issue is, would it become nuclear? Not necessarily. The Russians have, uh, I think the United States also has, um, weapon systems that are devastating and are conventional. In the case of Russia, it's their hypersonic missiles. Everybody talks about their evading uh, air defenses. Nobody talks about the physics of those missiles, which are taking the simple rules of physics of mass times velocity. And the impact of those missiles is uh, just short of them. So it's not necessary to go to a nuclear war in a in what looks like a total war between the United States and Russia. Uh, in that context, it makes sense to look for a bolt hole or, or a skate patch to a place like Argentina. Uh, however, I hope it doesn't come to that. And the this audience, uh, which you address, uh, has some chance of preventing it if they get out of their seats and exercise their civil rights. That's all that has to be done. I'm very happy to say that even in Germany, which is not known for courage, particularly in the political domain, uh, there will be on the 25th of February demonstration at the Brandenburg, Brandenburg gates calling upon uh, Olaf Scholz to stop sending tanks and to start neg negotiating a peace cell settlement with the Russians and the Ukrainians. That is, a, that is a left right combination that is calling this, uh, this issued a manifesto for peace. On the left is Delinka, headed by Sakra Wagenknecht, a remarkable parliamentarian, a very good, eloquent speaker, and a heart devoted to peace. 
on the right, what we call American newspapers, the extreme right. You have the uh, alternative for German, alternative production, uh, who are uh, vilified in mainstream media, but who are expressing some very common sense uh, measures to save Europe and to save themselves by reverting to a song that dates from the early 1950s, <laughs> go home, will it? go home, uh, Americans. So the, there is a chance, simply by exercising perfectly legal rights to demonstrate and to express your opinions, to do something to save us all. And I do hope your audience will take that to heart. You're leaving us with some optimism, which is good. And and also, I think separately in New York, I don't know if it's already happened or it's happening these days, the rage against the war machine um, conference events, Ron Paul and others will, many others will be speaking there against uh, what's going on in uh, Ukraine. And uh, everyone be sure to follow Gilbert's blog. Links will be in the description, gilbertdoctorow.com. Thank you for being on Geopolitics and Empire, Gilbert. Well, thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list that goes out with each podcast and every weekend with a collection of news headlines. The newsletter and website are our last lines of defense. We're being censored and deplatformed. It's nearly impossible to find Geopolitics and Empire on the Google search engine. We've been blacklisted. YouTube frequently takes down our videos with strikes, Facebook restricts our page, Reddit and Twitter take down posts, and after the Associated Press mentioned geopolitics and empire in a 2021 article co-written with NATO, our Patreon account was terminated. Vimeo also terminated our Pro account. The best free way to help geopolitics and empire is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and subscribe to all of our media channels. You can find the video broadcast now on five platforms, Odyssey, Rockfin, Rumble, BitChute, and Brighteon. You can find the audio broadcast on the podcast ecosystem, SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, and so on. My current favorite social media channels are Twitter and Telegram, but you can also find us on Gab, MeWe, Minds, Float, VK, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Finally, Geopolitics and Empire is in dire need of funding to continue. You can leave a donation, purchase a consultation with the host, or become a member to receive additional benefits. We also produce a weekly broadcast called Dissident Thinker for members and Rockfin subscribers only. We will continue to fight the good fight come hell or high water. Thank you for listening.